Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z. So glad to have you with us today. We are now in season three, looking at the nature of stress. We're going to dive into this ancient system and the way it works and plays out in our lives and talk with some truly amazing people who have knowledge and insights to help us find our way through the dance of life and the dance of stress that will have heart and truth and love in them. It's going to be amazing, I promise. Let's do this. Enjoy. Here we go. Dr. Anna Lemke, welcome back to the How Humans Work podcast. It's nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you again. I'm happy to be here. Me too. Me too. As we were just starting to talk about, um, I've been in your in your work again after two years since you were on the show last, and it's been amazing to revisit Dopamine Nation, the book, and just continue to look at the world of dopamine and the influence it has in our relationships, in our lives. And I've been interested in stress for a long time. It's like somehow it just kind of got into me as a a thing to think about, a thing, an aspect of human experience. And so I, uh, my third season here is a season on, I call it the nature of stress and studying stress and what are different dimensions of how stress plays out in our lives or people's experiences with stress, yada, yada, all that kind of world of stress. And I wanted to invite you back to really talk about the intersection of dopamine and stress and where those two aspects of our lives or the motivational system that dopamine's part of and the stress system. And so I did a little uh, thinking about it and I thought they actually share quite a few things in common. Um, in both cases, uncertainty is a thing. It really matters between dopamine and, and stress. Um, both have toxic and healthy relationships. Like there's really super beautifully healthy stress. And there's also, you know, as we know, toxic stress or, or harmful stress. And then that's also true with uh, do- our relationship with dopamine and pleasure and pain. Mm-hmm. Um, they both impact motivation and behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like your language in your book where you talk about mindsets of scarcity and plenty, which I think in the world of stress, the language is often threat and opportunity, that, that deep perception. So they're both tied into our stress responses tied in as well as our probably our motivational system. And then the time dilation and the narrowing and the shrinking of time. We talked about that on the last show. Still a really fascinating part of human experience where time perceptions shift. And um, they share that. And then they also have like, you know, brain connections. They both have projections into the PFC and the pituitary and the hypothalamus. So uh, I'm, you know, I like to just introduce a big chunk of material and, and let, let you begin to, to work with it and we can find our way. That's great. I, I love the parallels that you've drawn uh, between stress and kind of our dopamine reward pathway especially the kind of recognition of the balance between uh, sort of good and bad and and harmonizing and optimizing stress, but the ways in which too much stress or chronic stress or the wrong kinds of stress um, can be really undermining. I really just, I like that dialectic as a frame because I think it it just captures the the true state of affairs, uh, which is, you know, we wouldn't want no stress, right? There's this sort of optimal amount of stress that we need as organisms to thrive, but there's a tipping point um, or there are kinds of kinds of stress that are, are, are ultimately, you know, not optimal and not healthy. Um, 
And when I think about the relationship between stress and compulsive overconsumption, what vividly comes to mind always first for me is this amazing experiment in which uh, rodents, rats and mice were trained to know that if they pressed a lever, they would get a release of, uh, you know, intravenous uh, cocaine, for example, or methamphetamine would be delivered to their system. And we know that uh, rats, once they discover that, you know, especially in a cell where there's not much else to do, um, they will essentially pre press that lever um, until exhaustion or until they die. But if that lever ceases to emit cocaine, so essentially the cocaine is no more, no longer forthcoming, that behavior will ultimately extinguish. Another way of saying they'll stop pressing the lever and they'll go do something else. But if then you expose that organism to a very painful foot shock, which is one of the ways that neuroscientists simulate extreme stress, the first thing the animal will do is run over and start pressing the lever for cocaine. So I think that's just a, a very nice paradigm to draw this immediate connection between stress and dopamine or addictive behaviors, which is to say once we as organisms have learned that there's this thing that I can do that will change the way I feel, even if you know, in the long term it's maladaptive, um, which addiction is by definition maladaptive, then even once I've stopped doing that behavior, I've extinguished that behavior, I've gone on to something else, in the context of an extreme stressor, I reflexively resort to or am vulnerable to resorting to uh, reinstigating or reinitiating that that maladaptive behavior again. I just think it's it's just a great reminder uh, for you know one aspect of this relationship between dopamine and stress. Yeah, and so in this case, when the I guess we'd put it more in the harmful or overwhelming level of stress there's a need for some kind of regulation in the system. So is there a deeper layer to that where dopamine or dope or reward-based behaviors are, and I guess does that fall into the realm of self-soothing or, or self-regulation type searching that this, that the rat would do in this case? Yeah. I mean, it's grant again, it's maladaptive coping by, by definition, addiction is a form of psychopathology, but I, I think what, why it's so powerful for me is because it speaks to the enduring quality of these neural circuits and how let, let's just transition to humans, how even after cessation of these maladaptive behaviors and even after sustained recovery and abstinence or however that individual defines recovery, they can have an experience where uh, that latent circuit is reignited. Um, and that experience, there, there are different, you know, different things that can reignite it. But the uh, an extreme stressor is certainly one of them. And the power with which that sort of latent or dormant neural circuit can be reignited is just its lifetime. Do you know what I mean? It, that's what's so incredible to me. And of course, uh, my uh, wonderful colleague, Edie Sullivan, who's looked at alcohol use disorder, its effects on the brain, on the human brain, and also what happens in recovery has shown that those damaged addiction circuits um, in recovery, they, they go dormant, but they never actually heal. Instead, the healing process 
is kind of rerouting around those damaged areas, uh, creating new neural circuits that then become activated and dominant. But those old circuits, uh, you know, never entirely disappear. And I think here you get sort of um, a lifetime trajectory function as well. If, if we started early in our lives, then those those circuits are even more likely to be, uh, you know, sort of life life lasting, right? Because we lose plasticity as we age. Uh, so so you know, it's just it just it it's this what's called this addictions, the cunning and baffling, just the enormous humility I think we need to maintain in the face of uh, these maladaptive addictive behaviors. I guess we'd be helpful for uh, somebody who isn't familiar with you to talk a little bit about your specialty in addiction medicine and a little bit of just rephrasing the basic relationship and structure of dopamine and, and its role in relationship to addiction. Sure. So I'm a psychiatrist, which means I've gone to medical school. Um, I'm here on the faculty at Stanford. I have the classic three-legged stool of academic psychiatry. I see patients, I teach, and I do research. Um, and my work over the past 20 plus years has been focused on the disease of addiction, uh, which broadly defined is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self or others. There's no brain scan or blood test to diagnose addiction. It's based on what we call phenomenology or patterns of behavior, but there is indeed a pattern in the brain or a manifestation of the disease of addiction, even though we don't, we're not yet at the state of the art where we can use, uh, you know, kind of neurobiological measurements to diagnose it. We still diagnosed it based on these maladaptive patterns. Um, dopamine is a brain reward neurotransmitter. It is fundamentally involved uh, in the process of addiction. It's not the only neurotransmitter involved in that process, but it is by used by neuroscientists commonly as a way to measure the addictive potential of substances, as well as what happens in the brain as we get addicted. The main finding there is that things that are reinforcing or potentially addictive release a dopamine, uh, and release a lot of dopamine uh, relatively uh, in a dedicated part of the brain called the reward circuitry, which consists broadly of the nucleus accumbens and ventral tegmental area, which are rich in dopamine releasing neurons, Go. communicating <laughs> with communicating with the prefrontal cortex, which is that large right. gray matter area behind our uh, our foreheads. Yeah. Um, and what happens just really in broad brushstrokes in the disease of addiction is that with repeated consumption of highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors, which release a lot of dopamine, yeah. our brains try to compensate. Uh, uh, or adapt to that by downregulating dopamine neurotransmission by, for example, involuted postsynaptic dopamine receptors. But in response to flooding of dopamine repetitively over time, the way that our brains compensate is by downregulating dopamine transmission, not just to baseline tonic levels of dopamine firing, but actually below baseline so that we go into a chronic dopamine deficit state now this is the addicted brain, where now we need to use our drug not to get high, but just to feel normal and restore baseline levels of firing. And when we're not using, we're walking around in this dopamine deficit state, which is a state of allostasis as opposed to homeostasis, where we've essentially had to change our hedonic or joy set point as a way to compensate. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you. 
You're welcome. And so we're talking about the maladaptive relationship right now with dopamine, right? So this is, that's right. in your case, this is where dopamine, the normal dopamine processes become maladaptive because they get exaggerated hits that then change the set point of what feels like normal should be or how we feel okay anymore. That's right. And I always want to qualify that, you know, again, this is an oversimplification of the homeostatic process. It's not as simple as dopamine. It's a very complex circuit that we're only now beginning to understand. But broadly speaking, dopamine can act as a kind of metaphor to understand what's happening to many different chemicals in the brain. Great. Awesome. So it's far more than dopamine. And you started to presence this idea of a little brain circuitry that was injured. That's right. And and it, I, I started to feel a little sadness around that. <laughs> say that circuitry doesn't necessarily. Oh, I see. Yeah. Kill. Or it start, you know, it starts to be like, oh, okay, that's this learning part of our brain, right? If I'm a rat and I get a like, uh, an overwhelming thing, I don't know what to do with. I'm looking for what's familiar to me. I was given a box with Coke and nothing else. So right. That's what I'll go for. That's what I learned how yeah. to self-regulate, which says a lot about environments and how yes. you know, the options presented make a big difference in terms of what uh, behavioral repertoire is available to anyone. That's right. Uh, so, so there's that scarred tissue. And I'm, I'm actually wanting to focus on that right now. And, and a little bit is just like, oh, that's the substance all of us have in our brains or that little circuitry or those neurons or that little pathway. And, and so what, what, what's actually happening there, I guess, as part of my question is as best you can explain it. Um, well, I mean, I, you know, we, we don't know exactly what's happening, But what's very clear from animal studies as well as from human experience is that once those addictive patterns of behavior have taken root in the brain and become firmly established, we can disrupt those behaviors and adapt and develop new behaviors, but those original uh, established circuits never entirely disappear. So let me just describe another study, which again, I think is informative. Right. Um, so rats were exposed to injections of cocaine over a seven day period. And typically, uh, I think it was cocaine or methamphetamine. It was something in the stimulant category. Typically rats, you know, in a caged environment will keep themselves to the borders of the cage. They, they won't venture out into the exposed middle areas. But what happens with um, subsequent injections of cocaine over a week period, by the way, it's the same amount of cocaine every day, is that the rat will gradually um, move more and more often into the middle of the cage and will gradually uh, start running faster and faster so that by day seven, the rat is now in a running frenzy all over the cage. If then the injections of cocaine are stopped, uh, that rat will eventually revert back pretty quickly to hiding in the shadows, you know, in the corner of the cage. Uh, If then you wait a year, which is essentially a rat lifetime, and then expose that animal to a single injection of cocaine after it hasn't had any cocaine or anything like it for a year, the rat will immediately launch into a running frenzy as it had on day seven. So again, this is just one more example showing that a lifetime for a rat of abstinence, which is a year, 
of not being exposed to the substance after a year, after that lifetime with a single re-exposure is immediately plummeted into this kind of um, um, the behavior that it manifested on day seven. We see that in humans too. So humans can begin sustained recovery for long periods of time, get a single exposure to their drug or a similar drug and plunge immediately into the depths of their addiction. So I, I don't say this, you know, this is not, this should, I, I'm not, let me, how, how, let me emphasize this. This can be a depressing notion, yeah. but, but it, it, it shouldn't be because first of all, humans are not rats. Secondly, we know that many people with severe addictions get into recovery and stay in recovery for their lifetime, okay. that many addictions are characterized by relapses, large and small, but that that's, that's part of the disease process. People from those relapses are able again to get into recovery for sustained periods. But the truth of the matter is that these kind of latent echoes are very powerful and that people with severe addictions will describe them phenomenologically as relapses that, um, you know, where they're suddenly submerged into the depth of their behaviors or even just the echoes through um, craving right? So people, places, and things, something that they see that reminds them, or even their own euphoric recall. And it's like that whole process gets gets uh, stimulated again, even if they are, they, they're able to withstand it and don't relapse. It which gets into the point of us both being delicate and resilient. There's like this yeah. paradoxical situation where it also says something to me about the depth of learning in brain circuitry. And it's just like, whatever we do, whatever we experience, you can't unsee or unlive the things. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's tr that's a truism or a truth that's profound and has its right. own power to it. Um, but this delicacy between, or this paradox between being, well, at some level we're highly delicate in another way. We're also a pretty amazingly hardy and resilient. And I think you're kind of talking about both of those as being part of the human experience or part of the truth around uh, when we get into a wacky relationship with our our uh, our pleasure and reward system, yeah, and I would add that part of our re resilience is our ability to recognize and admit our vulnerability in the face of some of these very hardwired, very reflexive behaviors um, that we are all vulnerable to, given enough stress and enough access you know, in, in the environment. And that, that's, I think just really key. Yeah. And there's definitely enough access and enough stress, which right. is part of the thesis of, of, of dopamine nation is the access is just right. incredible. And the stress is in many ways there as well. So is there a kind of, well, I guess I'm thinking a little bit about people who are in serious recovery and how important that taking care of themselves and that stress management part of life is so critical and not being on the precipice of, you know, falling back into a complete relapse. Yeah. And I think that's what you'll see in, in people who get into sustained recovery is that they recognize their enduring vulnerability and hence they arrange their lives uh, with that recognition front and center. Um, and because of that, they're able to actually stay in long-term recovery and have these wonderful, healthy, thriving lives. And I would even... I would even add, because I think many of them would agree, their lives are better for them having to be in recovery, for having to had suffer from the disease of addiction, because the wisdom that they've learned about how it's necessary for them to live 
in order to not relapse is also a wisdom that informs every aspect of their lives and improves their lives as a result. Yeah, no, that's beautifully said. And one of the things I walked away from our last conversation with was a a profound appreciation for homeostasis. Like usually Mm -hmm. on the science class or biology or psychology, talk about this concept of homeostasis, but you just described homeostasis at such a deep level where out of addiction comes wisdom, you know? And And so that, 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 that level of being with the human story and the human experience at that level is so much more interesting. I mean, dopamine's super fascinating in how it works, but my heart always gets more alive and more interested. And when we talk about, oh yeah, when these hard experiences happen in people's lives, there is a a deeper well, even deeper than maybe the scarred or maladaptive thing that starts to erupt and maybe makes the secondary circuits and starts to realize right. how I'm dealing with my life, right. not dealing with it matters here. And I can actually do something about it. So right. um, I just want to plug that, the, that, that. So thank you for that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, it's good. It's good. Um, so I want to get into stress a little bit. So what is it about stress in your mind whatever level of stress. I mean, in a certain way, we're talking about the healthy kind of stress where people go and they work out and they walk and they do things that are hard and interesting and they have real conversations with their family members and they, they get in those uncomfortable positions um, in the recovery. Like people learn the wisdom of recovery. It's like, yeah, I actually need to do that, you know? And then um, what is it about stress do you think that makes us vulnerable to the maladaptive aspects of um dopamine or pleasure and reward? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's got to be the right amount of stress. Plus we have to have the right mindset about the stress. So it's both, you know, fundamentally like physiologically, is it the kind of stress and the amount of stress that our bodies can handle? And then secondly, how do we interpret it? Because we have these great big frontal lobes, you know, that have all these top down down processes that really affect how we perceive sensory experience or our experiences more generally that can then in turn have a big effect on the chemical cascade that results from it is any deviation from homeostasis. Uh So obviously we're deviating from homeostasis all the time, right? Because our environment is changing all the time, both in our bodies and the external world. And we're we're organisms who have evolved to both recognize the deviation from homeostasis and to take action to restore homeostasis. That that's essentially what we do as living organisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, that, that definition, the, the definitional deviation um, every single time from any homeostatic baseline in all our physiologic processes sets off our stress response. Uh, the, the, and the adrenal res- adrenaline that we get from the deviation um, is part of what allows us to then do what we need to do reflexively and, and metacognitively in order to get back to homeostasis. So, um, you know, stress is our friend in the sense that it mo- mobilizes or recruits these chemical cascades that enable us to be able to cope with the changing environment, which is the environment. It is constantly changing and we need to adapt to it. Um, but, but obviously if it's an overwhelming amount of stress, um, that in which we feel either feel helpless 
to restore homeostasis or actually are unable to restore homeostasis in that context, then you then you you know you set the organism up for um, for a, a difficult and and troubling situation, which will then lead to a disease process rather than lead to this kind of optimal um, sort of reorganization that allows us to move through the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I'm just thinking through a couple of things here. Um, I guess what I'm thinking about a little bit is the, the, maybe the self-medication aspect of it, you know, like where, well, I'll start with this. My, my definition for stress is any challenge to our attention and any demand on our attention or energy, which challenges us. Right. So it's that kind of like a similar idea to what you're saying about the biological homeostasis. Mm-hmm. And so that can be amazing, right? Like being challenged mm-hmm. and having our attention and energy, like having loads on it and pressure in our system can be really amazing. And obviously it's a, a dose dependent kind of situation mm-hmm. or a context dependent kind of situation on, you know, safety, scarcity, uh, what's your, what's your complimentary word for uh, scarcity? Plenty. Plenty. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I've been looking for a better word than opportunity because I like threat and opportunity, but opportunity just sounds opportunistic. <laughs> right. And, and so plenty is actually, and scarcity are really simple and very relatable. So I think that's a really good frame. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's my definition of stress and how I think about stress. And then I start to think about, well, what happens when we get loaded, you know, or we have inputs and we have demands on our system? And, and then when we don't know how to deal with that or we're given maladaptive resources or we talked a little bit about this the last time how we live in zoos and sometimes the, the environments don't have the the kind of intimacy or the personal relationship or the support for us to learn adaptive solutions you know right and so we know that's true and so i i see stress as kind of a setup for looking for resources like in the realm of food I, I'm going to need more calories, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And so the deep part of the brain somehow knows this, but you know, the the person who's doing the behavior, maybe eating the food they know they shouldn't be eating, then mm-hmm. goes through like the cycle of feeling bad about it or feeling like they're not in control of their lives. Right. So I, I guess what I look at with stress is it kind of sets up maybe some behavioral and some decision-making when it's maladaptive that leads to poor behavioral choices but also that those poor behavioral choices have kind of an intelligence in them that's just a little bit misaligned. That that say, you know, I I actually am I am more stressed right now, so I do mm-hmm. need I do need more energy, mm-hmm, so I do need mm-hmm. I do need a little bit more food right now, or these mm-hmm. days I'm working harder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm and this is I'm just chatting here a little bit, but this is part of one of the things I am interested in. And my bias is to redeem our internal circuits to redeem these motivations we have with stress or in this case, uh, or the situations we have with stress or in this case with pleasure and our pleasure and our seeking system and our desire and our motivation. How do we restore those in an environment that, that puts us in a kind of compromised situations where they they come out really clumsy and they come out sometimes very harmful and damaging. So, um, mm. Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great question. Um, it's a great great point that this world that we live in today does, kind of conspires against us. 
um, we experience st- stress, we, we naturally want to um, try to get back to our calmer baseline. And we're given lo- lots and lots of maladaptive ways to do that, you know, eating cupcakes, uh, binging on Netflix, uh, smoking pot, drinking, whatever it is, um, which in the short term do work, right? Uh, those do in the short term restore a kind of homeostasis. But really in the long term, the brain uh, recognizes that as a false friend. And in fact, that requires the brain to do more work to adapt to those surges of dopamine, which then in turn trigger more of a stress response. So again, what it, what works in the short term is actually you know making creating more stress and more maladaptive in the long term. But it's really hard to recognize that uh, because in that single moment, it really does work. Um, so I think this is this really requires both a lot of psychoeducation about what quick fixes or you know immediate anxiolytics, pain relievers, whatever they are. Um, what they're doing to us in the short term versus how they're really making things worse in the long in the long term, um, and importantly, you know, part of why I do prescribe and recommend abstinence trials or dopamine fasts is because it's very hard for us to see that true cause and effect um, in the moment. It's really a, a period of abstinence away from our drug of choice, whatever it may be, that allows our system to kind of settle down. The hard thing is that we we do live in this kind of work hard, play hard environment where even the the, the stressors are largely um, invisible and overwhelming. Um, and then we naturally and reflexively reach for, you know, intoxicants from caffeine in the morning to our Netflix shows at night to our Ambien, whatever it is as a way to try to compensate for a crazy making world. How is, how do I think the world is crazy making? Well, first of all, we're almost all of us way too overstimulated. So the subtle ways in which we have to process way more information than our brains evolve for, where we have to respond to many more people and human contacts than we were really evolved for, uh, where we have to kind of respond to these little um, intrusions on our attention um, all day long. The mm-hmm. cumulative effect effect of that is really to stress out our brain so that we don't, we're always in reactive mode and we're never really having those calm, um, lower stem moments that allow our brains to sort of recover and rejuvenate. And so it's like this, you know, this work hard, play hard thing all day long. So I think there's a lot about, you know, the the, the ways in which, our world, although it seems like life is really easy because we have so many of our sort of immediate survival needs met, is really a very stressful environment where we don't have the opportunity to sit quietly by ourselves or with others and just sort of restore in healthy ways. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, I I actually agree with like completely with what you said, and I appreciate the the subtlety of stress, right? At one level, there's a lot of stresses we don't have to worry about. right? But on another level, all those little perceptive, informational, situational novelties, and I figured this out working in the city, like 
sometimes I would see people on this amount of people on the street within an hour that maybe an ancient hunter gatherer wouldn't see in their full lifetime. Right. That's and, exactly and, and, right. And the constant prediction of, of, you know, threat or safety with each person, the deeper awareness and the, the mind body know is, is processing that whole time. Right. right. So it's like, at least for me, it is. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe for some people are like, Oh, just blind trust. But for me, it's like, okay, what's, who's around me right now. Right. So I get that. And I, I, I like that. Uh, um, I like that attention to the subtlety of the stress system and the, the situational stress that we're in and how that actually leads to us being more predilection, more towards some self-soothing, self-healing. So you're starting to talk about solutions in a certain way. And that's one of the things I definitely wanted to talk about um, with you today is like the different kinds of solutions. And uh, in your book, you have a really nice outline of them. One in particular, I definitely want to focus on, and it turns out, are you a wordler? Do you do wordle? No, I don't. I know of it, but that's one of the many things I could easily get addicted to. So I avoid. (laughs) Good, 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 good point of conversation. So today's word was truth. Okay. Five letter word was truth. I thought, oh, that's timely because your, your section on radical honesty, I think is so, is so tremendous, right? So on one level you talk about, um, well, maybe we'll get to that as well in terms of avoidance and abstinence and lower STEM environments, um, so let's come back to that because I already mm-hmm. introduced in this radical honesty idea. So let's talk about the importance of radical honesty in relationship to stress, yeah, in relationship to uh, pleasure and pain, and and how that is restorative. Yeah. So th- this is a you know something I learned from my patients in recovery, seeing them over many years, a recurring theme, no matter how they got into recovery was that my patients taught me they couldn't lie. It wasn't just that they couldn't lie about their drug use. They couldn't lie about anything if they wanted to be able to stay in recovery. Um, They couldn't lie about what they had for breakfast, about where they were Saturday night, about why they were late for the meeting. And this was really fascinating to me because it was such a tangible, practical thing uh, that you know, people can focus on that seemed to have this very profound effect on appetitive control or consumptive behaviors. Um, so, you know, in my, in my curiosity and, and in, in, in researching it, um, what I learned is first of all, that the average adult tells one to two lies per day. So we're all kind of natural liars, which means that in order to not lie, especially the, the, the small lies we tend to tell to cover up our own mistakes and shortcomings, we really have to, um, make an effort to pay attention to it. Right. Yeah. Uh, but that in in doing that, uh, we potentially gain a lot. And the first thing that I think we gain is insight, better insight into what we're actually doing. And that awareness is huge because when we tell the stories of our lives, we're not just organizing past experience, we're actually creating a roadmap for future decision-making. So if we're telling a story based on lies, we don't have access to very good information for for future choices. But if we're trying hard to tell a story about our lives that adheres as closely as possible to the truth, then we potentially have just absolutely exploded the amount of information that good information that we have at our fingertips to make good decisions um, going forward. It's also very possible that 
by actively and effortfully engaging in truth telling, we actually stimulate the prefrontal cortex. Yeah, that was part of the book that I thought, wow, that's so fascinating. Yeah, isn't that interesting? So we know that when we when we take a like an TMS or a transcranial magnetic stimulator and we stimulate the prefrontal cortex, which is the large gray matter area behind our foreheads, which acts as a kind of a break on appetite um, and overconsumption. It's kind of where we have a lot of our control networks. So when we stimulate that exogenously with a magnet, what we see is that people who are engaging in a a die rolling task are more likely to tell the truth in that gamified scenario and less likely to cheat uh, to, to win money. Yeah. But what's fascinating is that it's also probably true that not is not only is that a a top down process, but that by actively engaging in truth telling, we might be able to actually stimulate and strengthen the prefrontal cortex, which then in turn gives us more a robust control circuits and more ability to maintain appetitive control, delay gratification, appreciate future consequences from current decision making and uh, craft more uh, robust autobiographical narratives. Um, so this kind of insight that we gain uh, from, from truth-telling is, I think, profound. The other big piece of it is that it promotes intimacy. So I think we all fear um, that if we tell somebody about our failures, shortcomings, mistakes, how we've lied, whatever it is, uh, that they'll kind of run away screaming but in fact, very often what happens is the opposite and that people come closer to us, which is really interesting to me because we're so resistant to sharing our mistakes and talking about our shortcomings. We almost all want to craft a representation of ourselves that's just a little bit more exciting, yeah, yeah. you know, more interesting, uh, more talented, whatever it is. There's that whole study with the people's which picture they think was really them, the one that was just a little bit more yeah. <laughs> attractive, not a little less attractive, or the real one. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. a bias there. Well, it gets into the work of uh, Robert Trivers. Do you know who he is? No. How do you spell the last name? T-R-I-V-E-R-S. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, I had him on the podcast. He was one of the most uh, unusual interviews I've had. He, 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 nice. he, well, yeah, <laughs> a bar in Jamaica uh, and was having beers on a Sunday afternoon. And, okay. Uh, he, he wrote some really seminal papers in the field of evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. One of them you probably have heard of is uh, parental investment theory. Describe it a little bit and I'll parental tell you if I've heard of it. Theory is basically that you can tell in most, I think nearly all, species, who's going to do the choosing of a mate and who's going to do the fighting to, to, to mate. Basically, whoever puts the most time and energy into the offspring mm. do the choosing. And then the one who, the one who's being has, then the other sex, the sex is going to fight. So basically most of the time, because females carry, right, they're going to be more selective. So wait a minute, the, the female already has children, but they're going to choose another mate? No, no. So in, in reproductive sex, right? Mm-hmm. Sex, do, you know, I'm not a scientist. I'm interesting acupuncturist who's doing some other. <laughs> um, so, uh, but the, the female who okay. has to carry the energetic load, the stress right. of pregnancy, 
mm-hmm. and then child rearing or or uh, raising a whatever it is a chimpanzee or a, right or whatever that they're going to be that they're going to select they're going to choose right they're going to choose their mate yeah they're going to be more selective okay about who they get involved with because they take the load of the consequences falls on them the energetic load okay so in parental investment theory the sex that has carrying the weight of pregnancy and child rearing or offspring should we should say right it's the one that's going to be doing the selecting of the mate and then the males are going to like grow the pretty feathers and dance or they're going to fight with antlers and horns in order to compete to be selected okay that makes sense yeah so he wrote he he was like 29 when he came up with that he wrote like four mm-hmm incredibly accurate uh, neo-Darwinian papers around mm-hmm. how biology thinks. Uh-huh, nice. What are the principles there? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. one of them he that I've been really interested in and it relates to stress is uh, de- deceit and self-deception. Mm-hmm. And I think he wrote a whole book on it. But to me, what I realized is one of the stress responses, possibilities or the way people deal with stress it's lie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. self-deception and that the, the deception is an, uh, an integral part of the animal world, mm-hmm, you know, it is, whether yeah. an animal throws some eggs and somebody else is like raising their feeding their young so they don't have to, or uh, a, a parasite's pretending like it's something else so it can get into the system. There's like deception and truth are an incredible part of whether things are stressful. And, and circling back to that amazing point you made about that it's just better it's more to do the sensible thing is sometimes harder but it makes more sense in the long term and you're not expending extra energy worrying about things and that's the cost of deceit and self-deception on this is it stressful mm-hmm. Can't, mm-hmm. you know we can't trust in our it's like like you were talking about we can't trust our environment to be there for us well what if we can't trust ourselves to be there for us so this is my way of how my brain kind of starts putting these this bits of information together in terms of what you're talking about with truth telling and right and the importance of how that deloads the stress mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, oh i'm actually being truthful right so i've been interested in this this connection between truth telling mm-hmm. and stress for a while as it relates to deception mm-hmm. deception mm-hmm. like a maybe the short-term donut strategy of energy. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm, Telling mm-hmm. it's more like, yeah, that's like quinoa and kale. And, and <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It, yeah. 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 I love how your brain can go across these disciplines. It's, it's cool. Um, yeah. So what, what my patients will tell me um, and they have told me um, over the years is that as part of their addiction, they get into the lying habit where it may, might start out as lying about covering use, but after a while, it just they just lie. They're like lying machines. Um, one patient told me that when he was in his addiction from heroin, if he was getting lunch at McDonald's and somebody called him up and said, hey, where are you, man? He'd say, oh, I'm in Burger King. If he was getting lunch at Burger King and they'd say, hey, where are you, man? He'd say, I'm at McDonald's. Like It didn't even make any sense. There was no reason for it. But lying had just become kind of a reflexive behavior that was part and parcel. There could be small pleasures in the deceit. Maybe there was a little bit of some of that, some of that kind of like that, you know, no one's going to pin me down and no one's going to tell me what to do or where I am. But, but what, what, what patients, you know, in recovery will will almost universally say, uh, you know, with regards to your comment in particular, 
is that then the lying itself becomes a huge source of stress. Yeah. Because then you're like having to rem- remember what you said to this person for- versus what you said to that person. Of course, some of the lies get f- found out. Then you have a breach of of trust and a loss of intimacy and ruined relationships and lost jobs and you know uh, maybe maybe legal problems. You know, it just goes on and on. Not yeah. to mention just the incredible stress that goes along with having to remember all the lies and maintain them over time. Yeah. And and with truth telling and recovery, a big part of it is just this sense of relief that you don't have to carry that around anymore and that you can just, you know, tell people what's really going on or what's really on your mind or, and then the, the sort of shock that comes with people not responding the way that you would have predicted, usually responding much better, right? So having this idea in your mind, oh, when I tell this person this thing, they're going to break up with me or they're going to hate my guts or they're going to do some other. And instead finding that that's not at all how people respond and that people are very loving and generous. They just want to know the truth. And so, I mean, to me, it's just fascinating how much we don't understand the impact of of our lies, um, the negative impact. And we have so many illusions and fantasies about how we're protecting ourselves. We're actually helping other people by lying, you know, all this, all this kind of stuff, which just simply isn't true. But I think it's partially vestigial, you know, again, from an evolutionary perspective, because as you say, all living organisms lie, even nonverbal living organisms. So there's a form of a beetle that will invade an ant's nest by coating itself with the pheromones or the smell of the ants chemicals and deceive the colony because they'll mistake it as another ant. I mean, they're all, there are so many examples in nature right. and the ways that, you know, humans use, use uh, deception is primarily through language and language is a tool. We can use language as a weapon and a shield. And if you're in a state where you're facing off with some kind of enemy, I mean, of course, you know, we're going to lie with language, right? That's a way that we will protect ourselves and the people that we care about. But what's happened in the modern era is that we we are under stress, but we're under stress for non-intuitive reasons. We're, We're under stress really because of what I call the plenty paradox, which is that we have too much of everything and we are consumption machines evolved to grab whatever we can and eat as much as we can whenever we can because you know in a world of scarcity which is the world we evolved in you don't know when you're getting your next meal or your next bit of shelter or water but the problem is that we don't live in that world we live in this world of incredible abundance so we're 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 all getting addicted in an addiction mode which then in and of itself fuels lying and deception which then in and of itself fuels this sense of uh, being in survival mode, which is a scarcity mindset, which is this idea that I need to lie more to get more of that, which is, of course, insane because we have so much of anything. So to get out of that loop of self and other deception, compulsive overconsumption and addiction, isolation, shame, more deception, more consumption, it really can begin with truth-telling as the starting place to get out of that vicious loop. And it's it's not 
you know, it's just, it's so interesting to me that that simple practical step of just being like, you know what, I'm going to start telling the truth can be the starting place for recovery from compulsive overconsumption and addiction. Yeah. And then you started talking about this doing less, using less, yeah. less stimulation, right? Yeah. I want to just put a plug if there's any young people listening. I, I think about young people a lot and I think about what they're, what they're facing in the world and, um, and just, you know, speaking, thinking about people who are, yeah, thinking about young people and us who are responsible for looking after young people as a parent or whatever role we have. Um, what's it, what's the value and what can, what, what would you say in terms of what we get by less stimulation that may not be obvious and, and yeah. And maybe build that idea out to even this, committed periods of uh, refraining or abstinence or, you know, this dopamine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, what, what I try to communicate is that overabundance itself is a stressor. We have all this great technology, all this great stuff, um, you know, great, but too much of it is a bad thing. And that's the state that we're in now. And so we are really stressed out because of overabundance, which means that the intervention to reduce our stress is to reduce abundance, right? To not do things, to refrain, to destimulate, to slow it down, to um, have less stimulation, to consume less, to kind of try to create an environment uh, that is to some degree an ascetic environment, right? As asceticism being this idea of intentionally seeking out um, uh, painful or difficult things, intentionally or even, abstaining. Or even simplicity, like Zen. Yeah, like right. Simplicity, simpler, right. Smaller, simpler. Yeah. And I, I think w- what I really espouse is, I mean, retreats are great, like, you know, meditation retreats or whatever that that's, that's all great. And, and I think that can be effective, but I really mean in our everyday lives, just slowing it down, yeah. you know, getting quieter, um, having some time away from our devices, going on a walk without listening to a podcast, even though podcasts are great, you know, know, especially especially you. your podcast, right? But but still, like you're lying just, right now. Is that one of your right. two lies today? <laughs> no, no, I'm sure your podcast is great. Oh, I'm teasing them. Um, but 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 you know the but even with all that wonderfulness, like just kind of quieter, quieter, less stimulation. Yeah. No, I think it's important. And there's something else I want to say, and I want to, I wonder if you share this sentiment, but as I've been working through my, my thoughts around, around stress and, and how to work with it, I think one of the messages I think young people get, and in a certain way, we're kind of naming it. It's true. Like we're up against a certain novel stress that we, you know, no other generation of humans has really been in before. Right. Quite like what we have since, you know devices and phones and, and uh, globalism and the rest. And so, but I, I, li- I like to think that the message that we need is not just that, yeah, there are really stresses or there are really a- addictive risks in the world, thinking about young people in particular, but also that we're evolved to, and we're resourced more than we know in order to handle it. Right. There's a kind right. of a depth, a well, a wisdom that comes out in the, you know, through 
you know, those who are able to recover from the most extreme addictions even, or even just everyday adversities in our lives to, to, to remind ourselves that inside ourselves, we have a repository of stress responses or a, a natural understanding around what's good, good and right use of our energy in relationship to pleasure, in relationship right. to activity. So do you have a similar kind of um, sentiment around the pleasure, pl- pleasure pain story and the dopamine relationship of our motivational circuits that can go awry, that can go really awry, which you've seen and you've known in depth for years, um, that you kind of say, and then even still, this is why I feel hopeful about who we are and how we can feel good about ourselves. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very hopeful. I mean, I mean, humans are amazingly adaptive, and we we figure these things out. But I do think that a really important insight, you know, that we used to know that we've forgotten in the last couple hundred years, is that we really are wired for hardship. We are wired for stress, uh, and and in the absence of adequate hardship or stress, whatever language you want to use our brains and bodies get super confused. Uh, we, we start to, um, you know, m- misinterpret all kinds of signals um, because we're not moving in our bodies against a certain degree of friction, which is really what we were uh, built for. Um, and now we're in the position of having to kind of artificially manufacture or create that kind of friction to stay healthy. But we need to do that. Because yeah. we we are, we are not meant to just sit around and have stuff delivered to our doorstep, which is the world that we live in now. Yeah. No, it reminds me of one of the clearest moments I had was I was going for a header in a soccer game and the goalie hit the ball, but then he went through and hit, <laughs> hit my nose. So I got, I got like just clocked in the nose, right? Just really hard. But after the blood stopped and all that, I was like... I feel really clear headed right now. <laughs> right. There's something about yeah. that dose of pain that was just like, hmm, I feel really clear in myself. And, I, and, and so there's something about exposing ourselves at some level to the physical friction because we right. have a lot of mental friction, right? Yeah. Um, but- I, 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 and I do, I do think that, 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 that anecdote, you know, prompts me to want to say that people are different also in terms of the amount of stress that they can tolerate and, and what turns out to be. And some people they're, they're really, really wired for stress. Like they get punched in the face and they feel clear headed for other people that really might not be the case. So, you know, it's, it's important to recognize like what is the optimal amount of stress for a given person? Well said. Fair enough. I think that's really, uh, I like your sensitivity to that and whoever's listening right now and, and that there's no general amount of stress that's right for any one person. Oh, yeah, that's right for every person. But I think in general, we, we as, a, as a species today underestimate our need for, for the right kinds of stress, that we actually need that in our lives and we should welcome it. And part of it is mindset, you know, part of it is how we think about it. And if we start to get afraid of it, then we compound our problems. Whereas if we say, oh, this is an opportunity um, for me to reset my physiology, for me to appreciate what I have, whatever. No, I agree. And And I think that's, that's, that's where another place where stress and pleasure and pain interface, right. In terms of, um, 
And I think he's, yeah, this idea that we, through friction, through resistance, through a bit of adversity, maybe through some discomfort, even occasional pain, that somehow, um, for some of us, it's clarifying. For others, it's somehow beneficial to the biology that we're right. trying to shepherd through the story of our lives. It makes sense. Right. Yeah, I get that. Um, anything else to close out that you want to bring today, Dr. Lemke? Um, gosh, we our conversation was wide ranging, wasn't it? <laughs> um, no, I think that's good. I, I think, um, I mean, you had mentioned early on sort of uncertainty and how uncertainty plays a role um, in creating stress. You know, ironically, I think that's more true today than ever before. Even though we have more control over our environment than ever before, it's a, such an inter- another interesting paradox. Yeah, we're caught in them. And and I agree, that is like the plenty paradox or this kind of uncertainty paradox where there's a, a weird twist. It reminds me of this New Yorker cartoon where there's a couple and they're in their living room and reading the newspaper and they're like, the world seems fine from here. <laughs> like in this comfortable house and everything. Yes. Okay, but like outside and it really is more than ever mm-hmm. feeling today and this weekend that the world's a bit crazy. But um, but these paradoxes, and I kind of feel for me, the way I walk with it is like, okay, if I'm evolved to meet and adapt to the stresses of my life, right? then these are our stresses to embrace. These right. weird paradoxes and these weird complex situations that we find ourselves in with all the things that we've talked about today, that that's part of our job is to stand up, meet that, find ourselves in that, learn about ourselves, let the homeostatic, I I can love myself, I can understand and listen to myself, I can be authentic, and I can still find that resourcefulness to to stand in the world and stand with the world as it's unfolding in a way that's um, not just hopeless or not just addicted, yeah? Yeah, I love that, and I agree with you, and I think that's, that's a powerful reframe as opposed to the frame of like, oh, I need to look out for triggers because if I'm triggered, you know, I, I, I might, I not, might not be able to cope this type of thing. Um, so yeah, I agree. Thank you very much for being on the show today. It was great to have you. I look yeah. Thanks next for... book. Are you working on a next book yet? Not well, we're actually working now on a, on a, on a workbook. There are a lot of fake dopamine nation workbooks out there. So I'm trying to get a real dopamine nation workbook, uh, that might enable people to sort of put some of the principles into practice. So I think that's nice. a great idea. I look forward to seeing that out on the market. Okay, great. All right, all the best to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining the show today. You can support the How Humans Work podcast by sharing the shows with your people, your family, your friends, your community. And you can keep it ad-free by making a donation to our Venmo at HHW underscore pod. I appreciate your support. All music is performed by the incredible Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. To learn more about our guest, the show, or Jeffrey's work helping people make peace with their human nature, you can go to howhumanswork.us.